there. Welcome to the Incremental Revival Podcast, where our goal is to help you, our church members of Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga, better understand the what and the why behind all we do here as a church. My name is Michael, and I am here with Pastor Eric Durso. Hello, Michael. How's it going? It's good. It's going well. We're doing something a little bit different today. You got that mic like right in front of your face today. Well, usually you tell me that I need to push it closer to my mouth. Oh yeah, no, this is a good thing. So I'm doing my best to follow your directions. What I, pre- I, I have this. in my right hand right here. I just can't see your nose. That's okay. You don't need to see my nose. It's odd does, looking at a face without a nose. Does seeing my nose help you understand what I'm saying? Um, potentially. <laughs> We're about to find out. All right. In my right hand is a book by someone named Jeffrey Chang called Spurgeon. Jeffrey spelled the proper way, right? With a G. G Geoffrey, it would look like. Jeffrey. Spurgeon, the pastor, recovering a biblical and theological vision for ministry. And I read it, uh, finished it last week, uh, began on my drive home from Portland on an audio book, and then in the course of the next seven days, finished it. And... I liked it a lot. I like Charles Spurgeon. He's like one of the heroes that I have from church history. Mm-hmm. And uh, love reading. I've read his big two-volume autobiography and yep. some other smaller biographies. But this is one that was interesting because it looks at his um, looks at his theological vision for ministry in the local church. And I I love anything church related. I love reading about ecclesiology. And so I got a book of Spurgeon, who I love, and on a topic, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church that I love, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. It was. And then I thought, oh, this would be fun to talk about on the podcast. Yeah. So this is what we're talking about today. Yeah. Let's talk about the book, some of the stories, some of the lessons. And it is a good, fun way to talk about good ecclesiology, good doctrine of the church from like a church history standpoint, looking mm-hmm. at one of the, you know, the one of the most fun figures in church history. Uh, church history um spurgeon just is a funny you know, i think if i would have seen your nose i would have been able to better understand that yeah sorry here can you see it now there we go okay do you now understand what i mean now yeah now i understand okay figures um, in church history it makes sense now yeah so let's talk a little bit about spurgeon let's talk about yep. his church um i wonder how many or how how much our people know of Spurgeon. Yeah. So, what, give us give us the simplest three sentences you can to tell us about Charles Spurgeon when he lived, where he was a pastor. He um, lived in the 1800s. Born 1834, died 1892. He was a pastor of a Baptist church in London for 38 years. What's his church called? Died young. He was uh, the pastor of a church called the Metropolitan tabernacle um that was what it was called most there's some churches prior to that but that was the church where he did his kind of global ministry nice any reason we're not called the rancho cucamongan tabernacle yeah that would be a The suburban tabernacle just doesn't doesn't have the same ring ring. the church still is in existence it is and it's actually still a very faithful to this day healthy church uh pastored by a guy named peter masters this is true Okay, so Spurgeon, this is the 
mid to late 19th century in the 1800s. Yeah. That he would have been a pastor, that he would have been living. Yep. Died just before the turn of the century. Yep. Was converted young and began his pastorate as a 16-year-old. A year after his conversion, you were just telling me. Yeah, a year after he was converted. Grew up in the church. Yeah. Had a mother who prayed for him to be saved. A father, uh, yeah, past parents in ministry, mm-hmm. father who was a pastor. They were um they were not Baptists, they were Pado Baptists. Yep. So Spurgeon was baptized as an infant, but not converted until he was a teenager, but was raised in uh, like he has stories of sneaking into his grandfather's library and reading Puritans all day. Mm-hmm. Um so he was kind of uh, it's not like he didn't know Christianity, then got saved. Yeah. That was his life and his world, but the conversion experience didn't happen. He wasn't born again until the age 15. Give us the quote from his mom, though, about him being a Baptist. Yeah, it's so great. Um, his, uh, he became convicted as a 15-year-old that after he was saved, his baptism as an infant wasn't valid, and he needed to go get baptized. And his congregational church at the time was like kind of, well, whatever, you know, your baptism's valid. But he was like, no, it, it doesn't count. And so um, he goes and gets baptized and his mom responds to him, says, ah, Charles, I often prayed uh, that the Lord would make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. <laughs> his Spurgeon, he has a funny response to yeah, it, doesn't he? His, his re- reply is, ah, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty. And given you exceeding abundantly above what you asked or thought. (laughs) That is a classic funny example of the mastery of wit and language that Charles Spurgeon had. So great. Um, Yeah. You'll, you'll just, you'll find things like that throughout Spurgeon and you could say his writings or the recordings of what he's said. The the sermons and the stories he, he had a, he had a great quick mind. Yeah. And a masterful command of the English language. And that kind of segues well into a topic that people most naturally think of with Charles Spurgeon, which would be his preaching. Well, he yeah. is known as the prince of preachers. Right. And um, even as probably one of those preachers throughout church history that was fairly extemporaneous. Yeah. yeah. And just mentioning, like you said, his wit, his natural command of the English language or communicating things in a, I would say, very compelling and artistic manner. Yeah. He's a master of figurative speech. He was a good storyteller. He had an insane vocabulary and knew how to use the right word. He's always mm-hmm. painting pictures. Uh, Most. With his, with his words. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he, he's, a, he's probably, like, I would guess that the m- most people know about Spurgeon or, or how people have been introduced to Charles Spurgeon is just through quotes that they've heard their pastors say. Absolutely. Because he's so quotable. And he's somebody that people with his theological convictions, that would be very similar to ours quote and not Yeah, because he, everybody is, quotes Spurgeon. Yeah. And everybody loves to, yeah. um, and we'll let him and hope that it seeps in, uh, w- with that though, um, he's often known as the Prince of Preachers and, um, he would have a very high view of preaching in the church. Why don't you give us um, from this book by Jeff Chang kind of some of the the highlights of what Spurgeon thought about preaching? Yeah, he was a 
huge proponent of the centrality of the preaching of the word. So in that sense, he stood in the line of the Reformation where the, the word of God is central. Um, God speaking to us is more important than anything mm-hmm. we can do. And uh, so I, he has a quote where he, he would describe the pulpit as the thermopylae of the church. And um, not I, the thermometer, right? Not the thermometer. That's a different thing. <laughs> the ther- thermopylae was the site of a battle um, where Greece, it's kind of like the decisive battle that the Greeks had to fight for their future and for their survival. And so he uses that analogy, like the pulpit is the battleground. And if the pulpit is lost, if we lose in the pulpit, if the truth is uh, lost, if it's not proclaimed, if it's diminished, if it's um, buried in other things, then the church's future is bleak and it will not survive. But if we win the battle of the pulpit, if the gospel is preached, if God's word is extolled and God's character described and his commands are given to his people, then the church will be healthy. Mm. And that's that's our conviction as well. So it's so great to hear him saying that. It's Reading this book for me was like amening page after page yeah. after page. It's just fun to read books like that. Yeah. Not Speaking of this, not in an effort to pat ourselves on the back in any way, but to say this is how throughout generations – yeah. Um, the faithful have viewed things. And yeah, Spurgeon's not the only one. Before him, there's no, many who not, had the same not at all, nor after. Um, so preaching was kind of, in his mind, this is essential. This so, yeah. must take place in the church. Yeah. But the, the thing what I liked about this book, what I didn't really know as much about was how much of a thoughtful um, pastor he was. Absolutely. Thinking about the whole, not, he wasn't just a preaching machine. Show up and preach amazing sermons and mm-hmm. go hold himself up for the rest of the week. Yeah. He, Spurgeon is a pastor that's probably the two things he's most known for, preaching and his pastor's college, right? Mm-hmm. Training men. And yet, what we're, we'll, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but the things we'll expand here show that he really was a pastor, a shepherd. And the effects of that, even not just those he was with, was kind of actually widespread. Yeah. Um, in their ministry. And we'll, we'll probably get to pieces of that as well. He has this um, quote I, I have here in the notes. The proper study of the Christian is Christ. Yeah. Next to that, the subject is the church. Yeah. Amen. And he's just saying, yeah, number Christ one. Christ and Christ's people. Yeah. We, we love Christ. We study Christ. We meditate on Christ. But if we're, if we're followers of Christ, we also, it's proper and it's right. And it's a high priority for us to also study and meditate on and think about the church. And yes, he did, amen. He, he did that really well. So high view of preaching, which naturally coincides with the gathering of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, Spurgeon is one of those guys who likes to gather often with his church. Give us a picture um, of what this book portrays regarding Sunday mornings, other things happening during the week. What did, what did kind of that, the main weekly gatherings of the church look like? First, I think it's it's uh just so you know the scope of this ministry we're talking massive church we're talking between yeah it grew like in its maturity 15,000 people and expanding because churches from it in the surrounding area were planted and started oh, and revitalized yeah. yeah hundreds of churches um 
planted, revitalized, certainly influenced by the Metropolitan Tabernacle and, and what was going on there. Um, but yeah, so when we're talking about these gatherings, just keep in mind, this is, this is not just a small group of people that like to gather regularly. Mm -hmm. This is a massive group. Um, so they had their Sunday morning, typical uh, of most churches of the time. They'd gather their, they had uh, prayers. They would open their service with prayer. Um, one visitor describes that prayer as the hush coming upon the entire crowd and mm. Spurgeon just leading them in this God-focused, um, scripture-saturated prayer. Some have, some visitors would say that his prayers were more impactful than his sermons. He would just pray in such a way that people felt ushered into the presence of God and and made it all seem so real. Mm -hmm. um, he would there would be preaching. Now, there would be public reading of scripture. We've already talked about the preaching a little bit, but they would read scripture. Uh, there would be singing, corporate worship. Um, interestingly, they didn't have any accompaniment. Yeah, nothing. No piano, no organ, no no guitar. It was purely a cappella. Do you know if that would have been common in the 1800s? Um, the book, he describes that uh, in those days, the organ was becoming more popular. I was going to say, historically, not much accompaniment, at least in England, in churches with singing. Yeah. Some, so, some for some time didn't even sing. They chanted. <laughs> so, so at this point, like mobile instruments are becoming more popularized right. and the ability to create a space and create an organ that can fill the whole room is becoming more popular. So that was happening and many churches were adopting that. That was kind of a new fad, but Spurgeon felt it to be distracting. Sure. And that the loud music would take away from the singing of the congregation. So he kind of, you know, dug in and in his day he'd be considered a dinosaur, but he opted to not have any they would have a, a leader they'd have a man up there mm -hmm. leading the singing um but it would be no or, or only acapella no yeah. no instrumentation at all and the the reports are that it was a remarkable sound to hear oh, the I'm whole, sure. you know the thousands upon thousands of men and women singing uh heartily crowded the into the tabernacle joyfully praising the lord yeah the uh I think Spurgeon's church had no amplification of any kind, correct? He doesn't mention that in the book. I, I believe that that's might the be case. a misnomer from my part. No, I think that's the case. But it's kind of one of those like back in the day, it was one of those large things. His pulpit was like way up high, right? Yeah. And so the wherever rooms were built so that wherever wherever you, you are, hopefully you can hear him well. But he's like elevated, and kind of in the almost in the midst of the front of the room. Yeah. Projecting so, out for everybody. I wrote this this quote down in the uh, in the notes. One visitor described the singing like this. He says, "Like a giant that needs a moment to arouse himself, the congregation allowed a note or two to pass before they entered in full strength. Then the heavy tide of sound streamed forth in every part of the building. Many churches have cultivated more or cultivated congregational singing." Um, more congregational singing than Mr. Spurgeon's. But from the numbers engaged, no other singing touches the heart with such an indefinable pleasure and makes the frame glory with such a sense of worshipful sympathy. Mm. Um, I, I, I just, I've been to Shepherd's Conference. I've been to T4G, which is even bigger, was even bigger. Um, and of course, I love the singing of our church. 
but that would have been awesome yeah. to be in London in the, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 1880s and to hear 15,000 people singing these hymns. Remarkable. That would have been great. So they've got Sunday mornings. Yep. Pretty typical Sunday morning. And the elements are very much the same things we do. Yeah. Uh, they also had a Monday night prayer meeting. Actually, I didn't even mention they had a Sunday night regathering again. Another service, so to speak. Another service. Kind of formal. Shorter. Spurgeon will still teach. It was more expert, extemporaneous preaching for him on that one, even more so than the first uh, <laughs> morning gathering. Um, then Monday night would come. They'd have a prayer meeting. And Spurgeon always. Really big on the prayer meeting. Really big. He, he has a. What's up? What's up? Only book? a prayer meeting. Only a prayer meeting. Yeah, yeah, He's a got book a book. It. It's a collection of addresses that he gave yeah. at his prayer meeting. He would always stand up and give some sort of extemporaneous address uh, to his people at these prayer meetings. And there'd be hundreds, even a few thousand people at these meetings at times. And um, th- th- those, those lectures are great. Those addresses, I've read a few of them. And in his mind, these prayer meetings were a true marker of the church being healthy and vibrant and alive and necessary for the health of the church. Yeah. Yeah. He told the men he was training at the pastor's college and other pastors he would speak to at different times um, that they needed to have a prayer meeting and it needed to be a vibrant part of the life of the church. And they needed the, they needed a lead in that so mm. that the church learned that the priority of prayer. Um, yeah, so that was a huge thing for him. And and think of it, Sunday morning, like normal full service. Sunday night, not as full, but like another yeah. formal service. Monday night, the following well, night. Well, everybody's still a little bit tired from Sunday. Yeah. And it's Monday night, mind you. Gather to pray. The whole church, welcome to gather to pray. Hey, you can be thankful, church, that we're not asking you to come on Monday night to pray, just Sunday night to pray. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. let me plug Sunday nights there. We do have a Sunday. It's we do have our prayer meeting. We, it's a necessary, vital part of the health of our church. So true. Um, I, this is not necessarily the prayer meeting, but there's, you might have know this one as well, but somebody, some gentleman, you know, is asking Spurgeon, like, you know, how do you, how do you keep the fire alive in this church? And it's so vibrant and, and, and what's going on here, you know, with so many people and yet they're all moving in the same direction, so to speak. And Spurgeon says, ah, let me show you the church's heating apparatus. And he goes down underneath the church into this room and there's just people praying. That's great. And I don't know if it was for the service or what was going on, but people were often praying and gathered to pray for the church, the ministry of the church and the service is happening. Um, And he said, this is my heating heating apparatus. This is what's- I love it. (laughs) This is what is fueling. Yeah. And what God is using to fuel the ministry here. And is that not so true that our prayers are meant to fuel the ministry of the church and God's yeah. ministry in our lives and work in our lives? All that to say, we need to continue praying and come pray with us. He describes in the book, like, yeah, there was the corporate prayers on Sunday mornings. There's corporate prayers on Sunday nights. There was the corporate prayer Monday nights. But that also groups of the congregation would meet throughout the week for just prayer. Of their own volition. Just, yeah, just not any formal group thing. Okay, uh, so they they hit them three times. Boom, well, Sunday morning. Boom, Sunday night. Boom, Monday, back to back. And then again, Thursday night. Okay, so we get a two-day break. Yep, and then they have another meeting in the Thursday evenings. And this was another 
you know, Spurgeon would teach or preach. It was, again, shorter than a Sunday. Um, this would be for a lot of, there. Uh, I guess in London, there were a lot of people who couldn't make Sunday mornings due to work. And so they would have a whole. People worked more days back then. Yeah. So often. there was, um, it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't like he just preached Sunday sermon again. It was its own service and it was shorter, but it was still another like Bible study and the church was uh, welcome to all come to it. So yeah, they were very active, several meetings a week. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the church apparently was committed. It's not like these were small, sparsely attended meetings. Mm. Um, the whole church was all in. Praise God. You've mentioned baptism, his conviction on that. Um, and is there anything else you'd note on that and his view of the ordinances? Yeah, it, I thought it was great to hear some stories. Um, he had our same conviction. Um, a lot of people ask us, why is it that you require mm. baptism um, prior to the Lord's Supper? Like, why can't I take communion if I've not been baptized? And uh, just, you know, if you've asked that question, just know we're not alone. Like, we're not the only people who have ever thought that. Spurgeon was another guy who thought that way and was very convicted about it. Um, <laughs> it's funny, when he was saved, he had been baptized as a baby. His mm -hmm. parents baptized him. Grew up going to church. At 15, he was actually converted, became convinced that he needed to be baptized as a believer. Yep. He goes to church and they welcome him into membership because they all go, yeah, you've been baptized. Your infant baptism counts. But he's going, no, I've not been baptized. And so communion Sunday comes and they all and take all communion. And they're all thinking, this punk. <laughs> and he doesn't, he won't take it. He won't take communion. Even as a 15-year-old kid, he, yeah. he refuses to take it. Because he understands, no, I haven't been baptized. And only after he went and found someone who would baptize him would he take communion? as a believer, would he then feel uh, the relief of his conscience that he might be able to finally you know, go take communion. Um, so that was a conviction that he had yeah. from his conversion onward that you couldn't be a member of the church without baptism. That baptism made you identified with the church in membership, and that you could only take communion if you were baptized into Christ's if church. You've identified yourself with Christ and his body. Am I wrong? Um, I believe I've read or heard that they actually had like communion um tickets tickets yeah so to speak or no you're and, not wrong and yeah, they were right. distributed or you had to pick it up at the church or something before they would have their communion service and so you had to be like yes i'm a member in good standing of this church yeah um in order to take communion and present your ticket yeah what's interesting they would present those like, at the beginning like of we the year would, it's called closed communion right baptism precedes communion mm -hmm. and he's like very closed communion <laughs> well bring a ticket not entirely, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They had, I, yeah, he, I know what you're going to say. He would be open with, if there was a visiting Pado Baptist, he right. would welcome him to the, the table, but um, they would interview him beforehand. Yeah. They, like, <laughs> like, even if you were a visitor, you'd have to get a ticket as well. Yeah. They would yeah. issue tickets. Guarding the table. But it was also very interesting. They would issue those tickets to their members at the beginning of the year for the amount of times oh, they were going to okay. take communion. 
And that was also a mechanism they used to track their members' attendance to know if they're missing. And they would sometimes they'd have to discipline if someone was missing communion and they didn't have any of their communion tickets. They would have to explore. They it would be, you know, let's say they're reviewing who's taking communion. They can look at all the tickets they have, and they notice, you know, Joe Schmo. We don't have any of his tickets. Right. He hasn't been here. He's not walking with us in unity in this. And they'd have to go explore. And he talks about how Spurgeon was very patient. They wanted to sure. ask all the questions and make sure, you know, there are some cases where, you know, someone got sick and this happened and you they they weren't being disobedient. It was just life's cir- yep. circumstances. Yep. They couldn't do it. Um, but it was a way, a mechanism that helped them to track their people and care for the church. Yeah, because they would have viewed that the way that your love for Christ is shown is your love for his people. Yeah. And the primary way that you're going to show that is obeying the command to gather. Yeah. Um, So some people think that that sounds so restrictive, you know, the exclusivity. You require baptism for membership and you require baptism for communion. Sure. And you have these tickets. Well, apparently it, (laughs) it didn't hinder that church from exploding into the thousands of people. Yeah. If you're looking at it very pragmatically, yeah, I mean, it, it, it <laughs> didn't, didn't hinder that. So, and, and it was in an effort, I think as it is here to be faithful to what we see in scripture. Yeah. Um, care for people's souls, guard people and care for the health of the which, church. Which on that note, he was very big on membership. Uh, and that's what I was going to say next. Read these numbers. These are pretty astounding. He was a pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. Which is remarkable in and of itself. Yeah, 38 years. That's a a great length for a pastor. That's admirable. 13,797 people were brought into membership under his pastoral leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay, now these numbers are, are big. They're kind of hard to grasp, but... Follow me and you'll be even more astounded by how Spurgeon really cared for his church. 10,063 of that 13,000 really were converted under his ministry and brought into the church, baptized for the first time. So it's 10,000 of the almost 14,000. It's not 10,000 in addition to. No, those were. So of the 13. That's a remarkable percentage. Like 70% are conversion baptisms, not not um, people being welcomed into the church who were yeah. saved and baptized at a different church. That is remarkable. Yeah, it's about 70%. It is a hugely fruitful, evangelistically fruitful I was going to say, he was, he was very evangelistic in his preaching, but the church in general had much happening with their ministries yeah, we're, and oh, yeah. organically. That was very evangelistic. For but sure. membership. Okay, so they have, think, think of this. So 13, almost 14,000 over 38 years, mm-hmm. brought into membership. And they had a process for bringing these people into membership. And you might think, well, there's so many people. They probably had a process that was like, sign, know, sign here, sign here, <laughs> um, you know, agree to this doctrinal statement and you're good. They had a six step membership process for every one of those 14,000 people. Yeah. And Spurgeon didn't take shortcuts. Uh uh-uh. uh. And so here's what they had to, if you want to be a member at Metropolitan Tabernacle, you had to, A, meet with one of the elders. That was number one. So that was like first kind of getting to know you. They didn't have the ease of fill out this application and email it. 
Like, right. So the, the first thing wasn't a paper. It was meet with an elder. Mm-hmm. The elder would kind of vet it there. If the elder felt this person has a genuine um, profession of faith, profession of faith, they would, he would meet with the pastor, pastoral interview. Spurgeon would now meet with him. And so you know, Spurgeon is getting one-to-one meetings with all of these people. Are you saying Spurgeon met with each of them? Yes. Or did somebody else who served alongside him meet with them? Uh, he met with them. It was him. It was him. Remarkable. Uh, at one point in his ministry, he, his brother helped him out. Okay. <laughs> but he felt a personal obligation. Yeah, it's wonderful. For each one of these souls. Um, so elder, then Spurgeon, Spurgeon, pastoral interview, then. Then they would bring it to a members meeting. They would propose, you know, Joe Schmo for membership. Mm-hmm. Then at that meeting, at that members meeting, they would assign one of the members of the church to go to that person's workplace and to ask around, does this guy, pref- you know, he, he says he's a Christian. What do you think? You know, kind of thing. Yeah, I remember hearing this. And That's so uh, they said they did it for a couple of reasons. One, it was evangelistic. They would ha- say, mm-hmm. hey, I'm, I'm you know, here on behalf of the, the church. Uh, this so-and-so wants to identify with our church is and it would Ask give him opportunity <laughs> so if he if if they go and like you know this guy's not a christian he doesn't so they're very concerned about the reputation of their church and the and the holiness of the members lives do you know if they had a set of questions they would ask then like that there, were kind of standard well yeah um spurgeon you mean the, the inquirer the visitor uh, yeah the visitor inquiry. i don't know about that i'm know, most curious about that you know what are they asking when they do yeah, that? Yeah, I don't know. What do you? Didn't, I didn't read anything about that. I'm about to make some trips this week. So then, <laughs> yeah. So I then can't. after that, they'd have another congregational meeting with the nominated member present. And they would interview them as a congregation. Keep in mind, this is like 10,000 people. Yeah. So the interview was very it what don't think of it like everyone gets a chance to ask a question yeah it was uh the elder basically saying do you profess do Pr- you? prompts so to speak yeah and and uh, they would give a public testimony to their faith cool then the guy would leave then the church right there would vote on them so you so you would have but then they weren't considered members until then they took communion or if they needed or, or if they need to be baptized to get baptized they take communion and at the taking of communion they would be officially memberized i just made that a word up they were welcome maybe, maybe we should refrain from using it in the future <laughs> I, I like it Mem- um memberized. all really remarkable um yeah and all of this at this point, you could be tempted. Well, Spurgeon wanted to make sure he had a big ministry, but that it was legit, right? Like, yeah, yeah, maybe this is just pragmatic. I want to be a pastor. This is a large church, but I want to be a good pastor of a large church. And yet, he was eager to welcome people into membership and do a thorough job in that. But he was also committed to church discipline. Yeah, he, he- which. It is very necessary for the health of the it, church. It weighed on him heavily to know the condition of the church. He really didn't like um, how churches of his time started bragging about numbers and this many salvations, this many conversions. There's a quote. Let's see if I have it here. I'm weary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, 
this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Um, in other words, like you have all these people professing salvation and no one's being added to the church. Like right. no one's being added to membership. No one's committing to the body of Christ. So he called it unhatched. Those are unhatched chickens. This is not real conversion if there's no commitment to the local church. Um, so he, he was committed not only to seeing people saved, but seeing them united and brought in and vetted. And um, mm. that's why he did all this. That's, he describes in 1884, this is near the end of his ministry, mm. um, a, a day that he, he, uh, he says, oh, brothers, on that day on which I lately, I saw 40 persons one by one and listened to their experience and proposed them to the church. I felt as weary as ever a man did in reaping the heaviest harvest. I did not merely give them a few words as inquirers, but I examined them as candidates with my best judgment. In other words, 40 people he met with. Mm -hmm. He didn't just go, you know, very quickly through them. He, he wanted to ensure that they had genuine faith. Um, and he was so con like, so concerned about people's faith. He was even willing, like he wasn't just trying to grow his church. Like you're saying he exercised church discipline. In yeah. fact, I didn't realize this reading this book, his first convert, he later had to excommunicate the first convert of Charles Spurgeon that came in and you know, Spurgeon was so excited. This guy who was a rabble rouser in the town, known to be a drunk, known to be a thief, known to be profane, professes this conversion, becomes this great, you know, active servant of the church, mm -hmm. does so for a few years, but then slowly drifts off, goes back to his old ways, embraces drunkenness again, stops attending the gathering, and Spurgeon had to excommunicate him. Um, but it shows like that in, in our day, churches that are massive in the thousands, they don't do anything close to church discipline. Not typically. Not, that's what I mean. The it would not be as common. Mega church. Yeah. Um, but, but they cared about mm. following Christ's orders to care for the flock in that and particular way. Flock. Yeah. Yeah, you have listed here, um, they even cared for the church in dividing up the thousands of members amongst the elders so they could be cared for and specifically. Yeah, they had around 30-ish elders. Mm. Um, they divided the area and the and they would care for people by geography, I think it was. Um, Continuing on with the membership theme. Um, obviously, membership is practiced, church discipline is practiced, and the vehicle by which this happened and was officially made you kind of hinted at it but the members meetings um that Spurgeon had yeah. I remember hearing something basically that at times they would have multiple members meetings a week a week and they would just schedule them because they'd have so many members coming in they needed to work through them all yeah they would um between 60 and 80 a year for and there's 52 weeks in a year mind you right so more than the average number of members meetings is more than one a week one and a half or something. So we have one every other month. <laughs> they called meetings like basically attaching it to most of their ordinary meetings that also have members meetings. All right. We're going to have a members meeting this Monday night, right after. after we're going to have one Thursday night, right after. Yep. Sunday night, right exactly. after. And, uh, and they'd vote together. Uh, the congregation would mm -hmm. vote on new members. Um, and that's how they were able to welcome so many members in. I don't know what the math is. If you have... Let's say, f let's, I got my calculator out here. If you have 14,000 members, let's uh, over 38 years. How many is that a year? 
a lot. 14,000 divided by 38. They're welcoming 368 people in the membership a year. That's more than one a day. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. So every month or th around 30 new members. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Now, um, these weren't short members meetings often. Sometimes they'd be lengthy. Yeah. Which I, I, it, I found this so interesting. He describes uh, one meeting where he meets with people all day and then has a members meeting at eight o'clock at night going into the night. Um, the uh, Jeff Chang in the books describing like he's likely not eating. They're looking at this guy's calendar, like where does he fit food in? <laughs> Eats when he's walking down the hallway. Um, there's a meeting where we have the, 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 they have the minutes recorded of the meeting on May 18th, 1860. And it describes, you know, how they bring in 42 new members on that night. And if you think about the process, remember, they get brought in, they share their story, they get interviewed, they get voted on. If, if let's say each of those takes five minutes, like that's a long time, that's a cup, a few hours. And so based on the time it started, uh, Jeff Chang, the author here of the book says, it likely ended sometime uh, between 10 p.m. and midnight. This is not an elders meeting. This is a members meeting. Mm -hmm. But the church is all in. And there's a note um, of Spurgeon's writing scribbled on the, the meeting minutes that says this most blessed meeting. He calls it as ble this blessed meeting lasted till late a late hour at night. Bless the Lord. Mm. Um, one of the things in the book he describes, Spurgeon really loved these meetings. And it was kind of common to think of these meetings in his day as business meetings and kind of boring and divisive and everybody argues. And I really identified with Spurgeon. I love our members meetings. Yeah. I think they're so Agreed. joyful. I'm usually tired. You, you remind me that I often sound tired up there. <laughs> Kindly so. Yeah. You're kind to, of to encourage you to, but I am some happy about it. <laughs> I know you are. And I know you are. I just yeah. want everybody else to know it. Yeah. So pretty remarkable ministry, and yet it doesn't stop there. And this isn't, let, let's just be clear, this isn't to make much of a man, but this is to say, look at how the Lord probably used somewhat of a remarkable man, but a man who is faithful to try to use his gifting and do what he believed was faithful to scripture yeah. and, and founded his ministry upon that more than anything. Mm -hmm. Not trying to found a ministry upon his personality or himself or something like that, but on the word of God. And so the Lord honoring a particular man's faithfulness and utilizing probably special, we would say once in a generation giftedness as well. Yeah. And so it doesn't just end with kind of those numbers and the large amount of people that the Lord saved through this, but this church was a church that got to the work of ministry and did it often. Yeah, they were... Um, they called him a working church. Like he would, they were very active. And he describes um, like it was part of their expectations of the, of yeah. the members. It was regularly taught that this is how they should do their life as Christians. Um, and out of that, there's just a blossoming of ministries that. Um, In the hundreds. Look at this. Okay. I got a list. I'm not going to read all of them because it'd take too long, but these are ministries 66 institutions that were grown out of the Metropolitan mm -hmm. Tabernacle. Not all founded by Spurgeon. These are founded organically by the members, members just yeah. kind of doing ministry. 
the almshouses, the pastor's college, the pastor's college society of evangelists, the Stockwell Orphanage, the Colt Portage Association, Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund, the pastor's aid fund, the pastor's college evening classes, the evangelist association, the country mission, the ladies benevolent society, the ladies maternal society, the poor minister's clothing society, <laughs> the lone tract society. Is that getting clothes to poor ministers? I think so. Oh man, that's great. Um, uh, Spurgeon Sermons, Track Society, the Evangelist Training Class, the Orphanage, Orphanage Working Ministry. I could go on and on. These are, we um, are familiar with many, the ones that Spurgeon started, but we're not familiar as much as all these ones that the people started. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, Chang noticed or notes, 29 of these institutions were evangelistic. Yeah. Just people starting these evangelistic missions out of their love for Christ and their love for the lost. It's remarkable. Um, following the heart of their pastor, really. And safe to say, you've already said it though, Spurgeon didn't say, hey, why don't you go start this no, necessarily yeah. all the time? People said, hey, this is something I think I can be useful in. And that's a lesson for us. Yeah. Hey, we want to have a certain kind of ministry or I have an idea for a ministry. I don't need to go to Eric and Mark and Hans and say, hey, can you make, put this on the church calendar or can you tell people about this feel free to gather people around you and encourage them or bring them along in in these ways much of the ministry that happened in the church was throughout the city actually in what you could call a sunday school or children's schools that also were teaching scripture that members or pa people in his pastors colleges would just go out and do in the city um and it's oftentimes Sunday afternoons or just all throughout the week. Yeah. There's this lady, I forget her first name, something Bartlett, but she was mm -hmm. a deaconess of the church and she's described as starting this girl's study that had like 900 uh, young women in it. Wow. And she led so many of them to the Lord. Um, well, let's get to the, the pastor's college yeah. and then we'll wrap it Probably up. Probably the most well-known ministry to spring forth. So I love how even this started. It wasn't necessarily this grandiose idea of Spurgeon's. So it's a funny story. He, he didn't make it his mission. He's like, I'm going to train a bunch of men. Yeah. I mean, he, he wanted to train men. Yes. And he aimed at that, but something happened to kind of begin this ball Spark rolling it. was there's this guy who got saved, T.W. Medhurst. Good name. And he was uneducated, almost illiterate. And he grasp the gospel again preaching and he just preached and preached and he preached in public and street preaching and some of Spurgeon's church members had seen him preaching on on the street corner and they were concerned and they were feared that fearful that like he has no education um this is going to be disgraceful like he maybe doesn't know and so they go hey Pastor Spurgeon, can you meet with this guy? Can you fix any problems here, would you? And they uh, they meet with him. And basically, Medhurst says, I'm going to preach unless you cut off my head. <laughs> <laughs> he told Spurgeon that? Yeah. Spurgeon said, why don't you come back to my study? Yeah, and Spurgeon, <laughs> Spurgeon went back to his church members and said, hey, listen, you know, he says he's going to preach and, or, uh, um, unless we cut off his head. Sounds like and a reasonable I, sounds like a reasonable guy to just let go, him keep and, preaching, right? And he goes, I don't think we should cut off his head. <laughs> <laughs> and they all like take it seriously. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> he says, instead, I want to start meeting with him. 
Yeah. And I want to start training him. And so this guy starts coming in and this is the beginning of this pastor's college where he trains him. Well, Medhurst eventually gets trained by Spurgeon, goes on and becomes a pastor and, and all that. But Spurgeon so loved just, he called it having his Timothy that he wanted to have another one. Mm -hmm. And so, and the thing is what there was, this wasn't like a formal institution. It was just Spurgeon having these guys and he would basically pay for whatever needs they had to come and do this. Sometimes their living expenses, books, books, many other things. To the point where this, this was, um, it was Spurgeon's ministry. It wasn't, technically it wasn't the church's ministry. Mm -hmm. So he just did it. And uh, Chang says this, um, talking, he, he was able to cover all the expenses of the pastor's college. The tuition, the books, the living expenses, entirely from his own pocket, uh, from the sale of his sermons and his books and all that. He says, those sales combined with Susanna, that's his wife's frugality, allowed Spurgeon to spend anywhere between 1,600 and 1,800 pounds a year for this work. That's the equivalent of, in today's dollars, $300,000 a year. Wow. Spurgeon spent $300,000 a year to train up men, his own, his own pocket. Not paying a staff necessarily or paying himself to do it, right? And not, That's not included in that. Not taking out of the church budget. Yeah. Now, there was a, a time later, not long after that, Spurgeon took a strong stand against slavery. Mm. And his American listeners or readers of his sermons um, in the South, especially turned against him for a time. Wow. Because they were slaveholders. Yeah. And Spurgeon, Spurgeon lost a whole bunch of money from his sermon sales to the point where he couldn't pay to do the pastor's college anymore. It almost went under. Mm -hmm. And that's when the church basically said, we need to make this the church's ministry, not just you paying out of the, your own pocket. And so then it became put, built into the budget. And so it became a little more sustainable. But I thought that was an interesting little detail. Very interesting detail. And another testament to Spurgeon's biblical convictions and saying, I'm going to stand on these. I'm not trying to build a platform. I'm not trying to do a big thing per se. That's not the goal here. The goal is faithfulness. Yeah. And I'm going to speak to what's true. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of good examples in Spurgeon. And I love the book. Uh, if you're interested in both church history and learning from great men of faith who went before us. Also, you're interested in uh, ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. It's a fun, it's a fun book. I thought it'd be fun to talk about and instructive for our, our people. Yeah. And just a good example to say there are things that we want to follow, maybe not in scope, but in trying to We're be We're not going to be printing out communion tickets anytime soon. Well, <laughs> Um, so we, you know, we don't do everything exactly, but the principles that drive us are the very, structure, the bones, the convictions yeah. that are there and behind it. We want to probably echo and follow in many ways. Um, all that to say, this is one of book, our longer podcasts. How long have we gone, Michael? Yeah, um, just over 45 minutes. We're good. Oh, but, um, that still all that to say, the book is called Spurgeon, the pastor by Jeff Chang, and it'd be worth your read. All right. That is it for our Incremental Revival podcast. We're signing out. Go.